Arkansas Row Crops Radio, providing up-to-date information and timely recommendations on row crop production in Arkansas. Welcome to the Weeds or Wild podcast series as a part of the Arkansas Row Crops Radio. My name is Jason Norsworthy, Distinguished Professor of Weed Science for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. And today I'm excited to be joined by our Extension Weed Scientist, Dr. Tom Barber. Tom, it's great to have you on our podcast today. And I think today we're going to talk about some non-chemical approaches to managing weeds, some things that we can do outside of the box or things, again, that other than just spraying to try to get some of these weeds under control. Well, yeah, Jason, glad to be here. And I think it's a great topic. You know, the last time you and I were on a podcast, we talked about all the resistance we had, especially in cotton and uh, corn, soybean acres. And so I think it's really good to focus on some things we can do other than chemical to help get us uh, in a little bit better management situation. Let's start with the fact the two of us uh, have a project over at the Lawnman uh, Cotton Research Station where we've been looking at over, I guess, now the last three years, integrating practices into cotton. We've been talking, uh, looking at specifically cover crops, uh, a rye cover crop. We've been look, we looked at actually a one-time moldboard uh, plow and we're integrating that in with herbicides. And, you know, I've, we've got a student that's that summarized that work three years in, and it's really exciting to see some of those results and the impact that they, they have. And the plow treatment that we looked at was a one-time, it's a one-time moldboard plow back, I guess it's been four years ago this past fall or three years ago this past fall. And what we just, again, some take-homes from what we saw in this research is that you know, the first year we had a very, very strong moldboard plow effect. And what we're seeing there is we'll get 75, about 75% reduction in pigweed emergence uh, the first year. And then that effect diminishes over time. And actually, when we looked at the data three years in, we didn't see a significant effect last year. And this cover crop effect, when you put it on top of the moldboard plow, it just really, you're building on two different strategies and at times we've seen better than a 90% reduction in pigweed emergence when you combine cover crops with that of a one-time moldboard plow. Yeah, and that's really, you know, that was amazing to me to see that that first year. And, I, you know, that when we talk about this project, it was really, you and I discussed, you've had several graduate students, about, you know, working on different pieces of this puzzle, I guess. You've had some that covered tillage practices. You've had some that covered... Uh, cover crops and which cover crops work best and the biomass needed and that kind of thing. But putting all those practices together uh, and seeing them, you know, in one project and in the field and how they can benefit us, and especially on the, the pigweed front, was uh, really eye-opening to me. Well, and you know, also what excites me about this, when you know, when you, you talk about moldboard plow, I mean, I understand that there's a, a reluctancy for someone to drag that out. But I mean, we're dealing with populations, very, very high pigweed populations. And you know, we've got some locations throughout the state, as you mentioned earlier, that's resistant to a wide assortment of herbicides, don't have a lot of options. And that moldboard plow gives us an opportunity to get that in soil seed bank back down low. But another, the component here that really excites me is this cover crop because when we put that cover crop on top of that bed and we're going to bed all of our cotton here in Arkansas, when we bed that ground up, that cover crop has helped keep that bed intact and we haven't lost that bed, even though we had that one-time moldboard plow event now three going on four years ago, 
We've got the same beds. We haven't, we haven't run any type of tillage through that since then. We're still planting on those same beds that are intact because of all that residue or cover we have on the soil surface. Right. And that, and that just goes back to, you know, reduced time and energy to, to get the seed bed ready to plant. You know, when we have something that protects those beds and, you know, it's like you say, we're not talking about a, every year go in there and mold board plow. This is a once, you know, in three years. And I know we're getting the data here in a minute and that's kind of what the data is showing us. You know, we may need to do it if we get to a situation where we really have to start considering implementing this type of tillage. It's not going to be an every year necessity, I don't think. No, that's correct. So again, by year three, we had about 37% reduction in, in a Palmer amaranth emergence this year. And again, so that's diminished over the last three years. And it, it's about time to come back in there and implement another moldboard plow. But also when we talk about cover crops, some work better than others, at least in the research we've done. And again, what we've seen here is I'm a big fan of cereal cover crops. When I say cereals for me, it is um, it's cereal rye. I like cereal rye better than wheat, just partly because cereal rye is going to produce a lot more biomass. And the more biomass we get on the soil surface, the better we're going to be able to suppress emergence. We've looked at legumes in the past. You know, there's a lot of interest in legumes because of the nitrogen credits that you get with those legumes. But those legumes have a low carbon to nitrogen ratio. And what we've actually seen is it may be a function of just the nitrates being released from those legumes. At times, we'll see more pigweed in a legume plot than where we don't have legumes out there. So I, I understand there's a lot of excitement about, again, trying to put a legume out there, but that just has not worked for us, at least as it relates to pigweed. No, and I, and I think, you know, most growers that are farmers in the state that I talk to that have, that have tried cover crops a little bit, I mean, generally they're going to start with cereal rye. I think I've heard uh, Dr. Trent Roberts call it a, you know, kind of a training wheels type cover crop, the cereal rye. It's easy to establish. It's easy to terminate. That's what I like about it. Uh, and like you say, it produces the biomass we need to help us with the pigweed probably more than any of them. So, you know, uh, cereal rye for me, I think if I was a farmer listening to this and, and wanting to try it for the first time, you know, that's definitely the one I'd probably try first, you know, especially on, on my acres. So, well, and you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement. I hear folks talking about these blends and almost to some extent, these wildlife blends and using some of those today. And, you know, the issue that I see with that is what we've, we've actually found is some brassicaceae cover crops can be allelopathic to cotton. So you better know what works and what doesn't work from a toxicity standpoint. Yeah, it may help suppress pigweed, but you better have something that's not going to be, be negatively affecting your your cotton. The other thing that concerns me when I start having these blends of seven, eight way uh, different species mixtures, uh, some of these are going to be difficult to kill with just, for instance, a glyphosate dicamba burn down. Some of this is going to be more challenging to kill than some other species that we've got in that, in that mixture. So we just need to make sure we've got something that we can definitely feel confident we can get it established and we can control. And then the other thing I tell folks is when you're talking about cover crops and using those, start out with small acres. Don't go out and put, put all your acres into cover crops. Ease your way into it. I think you're going to be pretty impressed with what you can do with some of these cover crops. Oh, no, that's uh, absolutely. And, you know, this time of year when, of course, we're getting ready to plant, you know, the big question is termination timing. When do I, when do I 
spray my cover crop to, to plant my cash crop. So can you go over kind of what y'all done in this research as well as what you've seen in the past? Yeah, so we've done some things there. You know, we, we've looked at, we still have some work ongoing. I know you you have also some work ongoing. We're corn as well as soybean, where we've been looking at termination and different termination timings. Now, by delaying that termination, it's all about trying to get as much biomass out there as possible. And the more biomass we can get, the more that we're going to be able to sustain that biomass throughout the, the growing season. And generally speaking, what I've recommended to folks is to, I try terminating about two weeks prior to, to planting. I want to make sure that the stuff, the, the, the cover crop is, is desiccated when I plant. But now having said that, you know, we're looking at planting green. There's a big push to try to try to plant green. And I'm not going to sit here and say that's not going to work for us. The beauty of planting green is you're definitely going to have more biomass out there. And again, the more biomass we have, the more weed suppression that we have have associated with it. I know our good friends, the entomologists cringe when we start talking about planting green. And even two weeks prior to planting a termination date, uh, sometimes that they kind of turn their eyes up and look at us and I know they like an earlier planting date, but you know, Dr. Barber, with the insecticides that we've got on these seed treatments, and I don't care what the crop is, though, we've got some pretty strong insecticides out there that we're using on these seed treatments. And I've had very, very good luck. If I'm within two weeks of planting and I terminate, I had very good luck out of my cover crops. No, I, I agree with that uh, 100%. That's what we've seen too. And, you know, and I think from an entomologist standpoint, and we had a meeting earlier today talking about some of these things, but there's just a lot of unknowns. And when there's unknowns, obviously that leads to uncertainty. And we just, you know, when we give recommendations, whether it's uh, for, for insects or pests or weeds, I mean, we want to be, you know, we want to have all the experience we can give with it. So there's still a lot of unknowns there, I think, as far as Greenbridge and that kind of thing. But but I'm with you. I mean, you know, honestly, as, as long as we're at two weeks, I haven't seen any issues, especially going from a grass cover crop to a broadleaf uh, cash crop. And so, uh, you know, if we're talking about cereal rye to corn, that might be, there might be a little, you know, we might need to, you know, focus on insects a little more. But when we're going from grass to a broadleaf crop, you know, usually uh, we're going to be okay with that. Well, and so really, again, just kind of, if we think of cover crops, the goal there is to get some cover on the surface. And I want to talk a little bit about that when we're talking about non-chemical approaches, because, you know, there's a lot of ways, there's a several different ways you can get cover on that soil surface. And, you know, one has to do with row spacing. And, you know, I, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of beans, for instance, in this state where we're planting on a 38 inch row, it's a single row. And, you know, I much rather see a guy plant twin rows because that twin row is going to get to canopy about seven days sooner. And what we've seen in our work is when we get to about 90% light interception or 90% ground cover, whether it be a cover crop or whether it be a crop canopy formation, we see a substantial reduction in weed emergence. And actually what our data has shown is a lot of folks are of the opinion it's really this, it's light that is triggering the emergence of these weeds, but instead it's the temperature fluctuation that's occurring on a daily basis. And if we've got a good cover on the soil surface, the daily temperature only fluctuates about seven degrees at about 90% light interception. And that is a trigger to the weed that it is not in an environment that's conducive to success, that being able to, 
to germinate and then eventually reproduce. If you go out and you look at a bare soil today, of just general, general bare soil, you're gonna see a daily fluctuation in temperature at about probably a half an inch to an inch. It's gonna fluctuate about 20, 25 degrees. And so that is the trigger in a lot of instances that keeps these weeds from germinating and helps us successfully grow a crop and really takes the selection pressure off of some of our herbicides. Well, yeah, I, that, you know, that was kind of the eye-opening thing to me because I was probably uh, one of those individuals in the, well, it's taking out the light and therefore it's not triggering germination, you know, before we started all this work. But, you know, when we first started with seeding rates, you know, I think we were started with cereal rice somewhere around 100 pounds to the acre. And now we've backed that down. And it so it doesn't, you know, the biomass, I guess, doesn't have to block out all the light. It just has to do good enough to prevent that, big swing in temperature fluctuation is what we're hearing now. So that, that, that is, that is correct. Again, I mean, I don't need just a ton of biomass. I mean, the beauty again of the cereal rye is the high carbon to nitrogen ratio. And so for that reason, the biomass that I have a tendency to produce there, I've seen that it stays intact throughout uh, most of the season. And, you know, something else that, you know, I'm, I'm going to want, I think me and you were talking a couple of days ago about is, Moving forward, I'm going to I'm going to look at some intercropping and, you know, back I was, about 20 years ago, there was a lot of buzz about intercropping and intercropping is just a technique. If you take a look at wheat and I know wheat prices are, are, are up, hopefully they'll stay up for a while. But if you take a wheat crop and you come in and where you've got about a 12 inch wheat crop, there's actually been some research to plant soybean into that wheat crop early about this time of year. Um, maybe even a week earlier than this. And with that, those soybeans are going to emerge. And when you go in and you harvest your wheat in early, early June, we potentially at that point then have a soybean crop that's up V1, V2, and that crop's going to canopy a lot sooner. And with that, you have cover on the soil surface almost year round. And it does a tremendous job based on what I've seen in the literature in suppressing weeds. Well, I think that's, you know, to me, that's an intriguing idea. You know, we keep coming back to these cultural methods that, that have been done in the past. I mean, cover crops, for example, it's not a new thing. Deep tillage is not a new thing. But we keep coming back to those just because we know the next chemistry for pigweed is several years down the road, really, realistically. I mean, from a new mode of action standpoint. Um, so it's, um, it's critical that we look back at some of these, you know, cultural methods that worked in the past to see if we can implement those to, to help us at least during this period of time uh, where we may run out of options posts uh, for Palmer pigweed. i tell you something else that I think we can use to our advantage is if you take your weed of choice, barnyard grass, Palmer amaranth, what, whatever the weed might be, there's a peak period in the growing season in when that weed emerges. Yes, I'll be the first to tell you that Palmer emerges over probably about a six month period, but there's a certain time of year that you're gonna get greater emergence. And just looking at planting dates, uh, if we go out and we think about corn, generally speaking, we don't have as much of a pigweed issue in corn. And I'm talking about early planted corn is what we do in soybeans that are planted uh, mid-May because really mid-May, early June is the peak period of pigweed emergence. And you're planting right at the same time that that crop is emerging. And that, that's an issue that we have to deal with. So I just want everyone to also remember, 
we've had a lot of flexibility. If you look at soybean today, there's a lot of flexibility as to when you can plant soybean. And moving that planting date up, there's a lot of interest in doing that. And I think there may be some value in terms of helping to protect us against these pigweeds that are out there emerging in mid-May and June. Well, and I, and I agree. And I think we've seen a great benefit where we have on the growers that have done, you know, narrowed their row spacing like you're talking about and moved and shifted their planting window to earlier, you know, for various reasons. Uh, but especially in a weed management scenario, it it is a big benefit. You know, when I plan my uh, plots that I'm evaluating herbicides for, you know, weed control and efficacy or whatever. I don't want to plant those very early because I'm not going to have my weed population. So that, you know, that fits right into what we're talking about here. So the, you know, hopefully this rain that's moving through now, you know, uh, we'll get some good weather after this and can get in and start uh, planting a lot, of, especially of our soybean acres. Cotton is one of those where we are limited somewhat to our planting window. Uh, because those soil temperatures have to be right for everything to work right. But but uh, with soybeans, absolutely, I think we can push the envelope more than we are right now. Yeah, and so on top of that, I think another strategy that really comes to my mind is, because mine is just preventing seed production. You know, we've talked about zero tolerance. I mean, that is a concept that has been around for, for many years now here in Arkansas. And back your predecessor, Ken Smith, that was a, he was a big proponent of it. And I'm I'm still to today a big proponent because when you take a look at preventing seed production, and I'm not saying that you've got to go out there and you're going to have to hand weed every acre, but if we can make, if we can utilize as many strategies as possible from keeping these weeds from going to seed, it's going to benefit us next year because really what we're doing is we're bringing down the soil seed bank. No, absolutely. And I think, and you know, we we talked about our cotton project earlier that we've got looking at this, but you know, we've also got one in beans where we're implementing these strategies and uh, the seed destructors, uh, the ready cop seed destructor that we have right now. Uh, like you have one up in, in Northeast Arkansas and I have one at uh, Newport there. So, uh, you know, I think all of that, when we look at just implementing multiple cultural strategies and in soybeans, especially we can get two or three in there pretty easy. In cotton, like I mentioned, it's a little bit harder, but but uh, where we can, I mean, implementing these multiple strategies, cultural, something other than chemical, we're going to be better off in the end. Yeah, I've heard it referred to as the mini little hammer approach. I mean, you're not going to, none of these strategies are going to be equivalent to a herbicide, but when you start stacking them on top of each other, it's pretty impressive uh, how much weed suppression, reduction in emergence and suppression of growth you can get. Uh, when you have multiple strategies that you're utilizing. And like I said, I mean, some of my some of my work where we've actually taken herbicides out of the system and we've gone in and we'll count, we'll hand weed these plots. So we can get better than 90% reduction in weed emergence over the course of a growing season just using some of these strategies we've talked about today. Oh, absolutely. And I keep remembering, you know, all those meetings we had when, when uh, those farmers and growers from Australia came over and talked about the situation there where they are in with uh, rigid ryegrass and how they have no chemical options available. And, you know, I would just, I'd love to see some of these cultural methods implemented before we get to that point with, with Palmer Amaranth, you know, and I don't want to be a doom and gloom guy here, but you know, uh, the writing's on the wall for me on what's going to happen over the next five years, probably. Well, it is an eye-opening experience. I had an opportunity in 2013 to, 
spend about three weeks in Australia. And when you're standing on a farm and the guy's sitting there telling you there's not a single herbicide I can spray that's going to control rigid ryegrass. And, but what's also interesting is, I mean, those guys are not out of business today. You know, their back was against the wall and they came out swinging. And, you know, a lot of these strategies that we're sitting here talking about, they were very uh, innovative. Uh, these, these, these guys were, and, and uh, they've had some success managing ryegrass in the absence of effective herbicides. So, I tell folks at the end of the day, I'm confident that we're going to have success. I don't think that pigweed's going to put us out of business, uh, but I do think that we're going to continue to see pigweed evolve resistance to the herbicides that we have that are still effective. So we've got to try to get in front of this if we're going to keep herbicides as being a tool in our tool basket. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there any other strategies that we haven't, haven't discussed at this point that you'd like to touch on today? Not really from a cultural standpoint. I think, though, just as important, if there's one thing that comes to my mind when we do have to, you know, we are still implementing herbicides and we will always implement herbicides into these programs. But I think, you know, we preach it all the time and we talk about it every time we have a podcast, but multiple residuals and timely post applications. I mean, it goes hand in hand with all of these uh, cultural uh, management practices that we're talking about here. The only thing I'll add to that is is start cleaning. You know, if if I don't have if I don't have tillage running in front of the planter, I've got gramoxone or some other herbicide that's sitting there just ensuring that I don't have weeds up when I when I plant. Because if you have weeds up at the time of planting and you're not clean, uh, you're going to be behind the eight ball and you're going to have difficulty getting back in front of it. No, absolutely, great points. So. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today and talking about some of these non-chemical approaches and some of the selection pressures they can take off of our herbicides. And uh, I hope our audience has enjoyed this discussion and I appreciate them for being with, with us on this episode of the Weeds or Wild podcast series on the Arkansas Row Crops Radio. Arkansas Row Crops Radio is a production of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. For more information, please contact your local county extension agent or visit uaex.uada.edu.